Welcome to the Foundation Podcast, your weekly insight into the most significant conservative ideas being discussed right now all across America. From policymakers to grassroots activists, and from thought leaders to elected leaders, each week we bring you the people and the ideas shaping the American Republic. Brought to you with a dose of Texas, where Lone Star Liberty shines brighter than ever. All right, folks, thanks again for joining the next episode of the Foundation Podcast. I think every week we are privileged to have leaders of our right-minded movement here on the podcast. And this week you're in for a real treat because Daniel Garza, who's the president of the Libre Initiative, has joined us. Daniel, as you may know, is someone who looks at American policy and American politics through a really optimistic lens. He, I will let him tell you the kind of work that he does and the, the priorities that he and the Libre Initiative work on. But first, let me say to Daniel Garza, welcome to the foundation. Kevin, thank you so much. It's, it's an absolute pleasure to be with you and to speak to the folks that are listening to us. You know, a lot of people have, have certainly heard about you, may even know you, but for those who haven't, I can just say for them that in the couple of years that I've been at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, of course, you've been at, at, at Libre for a while, and we work together, our organizations work together on some issues that it's always such a breath of fresh air. You have the most wonderful staff. Libre has such a wonderful mission. You're an excellent leader. And I think for someone who's trying to understand what the future of America looks like in terms of how we speak with one another, how we conduct ourselves, you and your staff at Libre are real models for the rest of us. Wow, Kevin, thank you so much for that. Uh, that I'll take that as a compliment and, and humbly so. Thank you. Well, why don't you tell us, you're welcome, uh, Daniel, why don't you tell us the, the work that you do at Libre, what your mission is, and just a kind of high-level view of your priorities, which we'll get into the details of momentarily. Sure, absolutely. Um, look, uh, let, let me just say as a preface that, that I, you know, it's, I think it's, uh, I'm proud to say we operate on a national scale. Uh, we are the largest, probably the most influential Latino uh, organization in the country when it comes to advancing an agenda that limits government, that advances free market principles, economic freedom, a free society. Uh, and we've received an incredible response from Latinos who embrace wealth creation, increased productivity and, and economic growth. And so, you know, there's been a lot of Latinos who in the past felt that they could not embrace much of the agenda that was being promoted by those on the left. Now, to the credit of the left, they were the only ones who actually had made investment in Latino communities and were engaging them and outreaching to them. And I think they were parlaying that into huge, um, a huge benefit, you know, when it came to policy and, and political wins uh, or outcomes in the past. But it, there was no question that the policy discussion in the Latino community was a one-sided conversation for decades. And so we've changed that. Uh, we are very much unapologetically a counter voice to the, to the voices of collectivism uh, that seek to centralize more and more power and money in Washington, D.C., so, uh, and in state capitals, of course. So um, I, I think if, if there's been any blowback from the left on us, it's because you know, we, we uh, have felt that we are a threat to them. Uh, because frankly, many times we don't agree with their policy positions, and, and, and we're trying to move Latinos away from those policy positions. Well, I tell you, you talk about an initiative that is desperately needed in American society. One of the things that I and, and a lot of people who think like you and I do find frustrating is that for the certain segments of the population to reduce human persons to a segment, but that's how the left often thinks with its identity politics, 
that the left believes they can just sort of shut off to any true discourse, any true conversation, these policy discussions with Latinos, with African-Americans, for that matter, if you think about some Trump voters in the Rust Belt, poor white families. And one of the refreshing aspects of the work that you do is that not only are you all engaged in that policy work itself, but you have found a way through authentic relationships with people to persuade them to your way of thinking. And so I think our listeners would find it interesting to hear that process. You, let's say you're, you're working on the issue of overcoming poverty or, um, you know, say, entrepreneurship. You don't just throw white papers at people. You actually cultivate a relationship with them, and then that becomes perhaps a lever for greater success with them. So why don't you walk through that process for us? Well, absolutely. You know, it starts with, uh, I think, the recognition that there is a predisposition in especially the immigrant Latino, but Latinos mm -hmm. in, in general, that we feel strongly that Latinos need free markets and a free society to thrive and prosper. And free markets need Latinos. So, so we engage and mobilize our Latino community to defend the principles of, of limited government and economic freedom um, to sustain really a free society. Now, here's the thing about that. When I talk about that predisposition, more Latinos self-identify as conservative than liberal or moderate, according to several polls, actually. A, a recent one was the Pew Hispanic poll and the NBC Marist poll. But frankly, um, the GOP, for example, has, has failed in the past to make the kind of investments that needed to be made in, in order to educate Latinos on, on the free market uh, limited government agenda that, that Latinos embrace. You know, uh, Ronald Reagan said it best. Freedom doesn't pass on through the blood. It passes on from one generation to the next. But when the conversation has been entirely one-sided, all pro-government, uh, statist, then, of course, you know, we, we've, we had fallen behind. So I think now um, those of us in the free market side and the libertarian conservative side have fully recognized, I think, the impact that the Latino vote is making. And so you're seeing those inroads, that engagement, that, those kind of investments and relationship building uh, that is taking place. And you're, you're seeing massive results. I mean, here in Texas, for example, John Cornyn won the Latino vote with 52 percent of the vote in a, in a successful reelection uh, for, for Senate. Uh, you know, tough on immigration governor Greg Abbott won 45 percent of the Latino vote. And, and so it's and it's not just political outcomes, obviously. It has to do with policy at the end of the day, too. You know, and to, to answer your question, uh, I, but again, it starts with the premise that Latinos will embrace the message of, of free markets. And if they hadn't in the past, it wasn't because they rejected free market principles. There was just an absence of that conversation. So thanks for that, Daniel. I, I think that process is, is really interesting. Would you, for our listeners, explain maybe what the most challenging issue or two may be when it comes to overcoming those, those kind of built-in barriers to the conservative free market message? Sure, absolutely. Um, so well, there's a couple, right? I think one of the most challenging ones was that, you know, when you first launch, you know, you have a zero baseline, a zero uh, relationship with the Latino community, mm -hmm. other than your own personal relationships, right, that you built over the years. So uh, recruitment of young volunteers to do the canvassing and do the phone calls uh, to gain their trust and credibility as, you know, a strong advocate on their behalf, you know, was was really, you know, a challenge at first, because um, it's hard work. Uh, recruiting young Latinos is, 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 is hard work in and of itself. And then actually canvassing the neighborhoods is hard work. 
driving from work to a campaign office to make phone calls on behalf of a candidate, uh, policy issues, um, is hard work. Uh, but, but really, that's been the kind of effort, you know, that needs to be done. And, and who's going to do it for us? You know, uh, mm-hmm. Are we going to depend on non-Latinos? You know, we need to step up. And, and so we realized early on that it wasn't only necessary to educate Latinos about free market principles and, and, and the merits of limited government, but to engage them on these issues as well and mobilize them, use their talents and their vast capacities. Uh, now we have thousands and thousands of volunteers across the country that we're able to mobilize, and that has been so rewarding. But it was a lot of hard work at, at, at the start. The other one really, um, look, you know, as Americans, all of us, uh, you know, we believe in having a square deal for everybody, a, a, a you know, equal opportunity, a fair shot. And the reality is that the free market, you know, ha, you know, as much as we love the free market, has a tendency to kick you in the teeth and, and mm-hmm. you know, more, more times than not. And, and regrettably, too many are also effectively cut off from the marketplace due to significant barriers, barriers that we can help them eliminate. And so, you know, we realized early on that we were going to have to be a part of the community and help people. Like, for example, in some states, 50% of Latinos did not have a driver's license. That was a wow. major barrier to them. Mm-hmm. 33% of us do not have a high school diploma. 30% of us only speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. And, of course, legalization issues. Uh, so we wanted to be a part of the community. And, and we have helped people get their GED, thousands to get their driver's license, uh, uh, a ton of folks you know, in, in learning English. And this has removed these barriers, right? And now they are the biggest proponents of, of the free market system because they are now better positioned in the marketplace. And they are the, the, the same people who are helping us canvas to make the phone calls. And, and so, but that took a lot of hard work early on. Well, I, I tell you, I, I'm just fascinated by the the process that you and, and Libre use, and, and I didn't know anything about this until a couple of years ago when we first met. And and it's and it, just to provide some context for our listeners, our public policy foundation was trying to figure out how to get involved into outreach, and and, and not just to Latinos and African Americans, but people who of any ethnic background who just haven't yet had the opportunity to share in the joy we have because of what we believe. And it was you and your staff who said, Kevin, you you can't just come down here as a think tank there being the Rio Grande Valley and sort of disseminate your white papers and do a couple of radio interviews, because then you start to sound like the typical political campaign that's just using people. You have to start with relationships. And of course, that makes perfect sense. And that's, that's what's motivating your work. That's to help a fellow brother and sister, regardless of where they're coming from. And whether it's helping them secure a GED or a driver's license, you're doing that. It actually helps them because it gives them access to the marketplace. And then you might develop a real friendship with them that makes them more receptive as any of us would be to the policy work that you and some of your coalition partners like us are working on. And so I think it's really helpful for our listeners, especially if they live in a state where it's not a border state, there isn't a large immigrant population to understand that this is not something that happens overnight. This is really long-term difficult work. But you know, Kevin, it's interesting you say that because, uh, you know, we've kind of on the one hand, we love to say that we want to reduce the redistribution of earned wealth 
but what what replaces it and for us it's redistribution of knowledge and opportunity equal opportunity mm -hmm. and and but of course to have equal opportunity you have to remove barriers and we have to be a part of that so and, and it, it does create that trust and then we become a credible advocate on behalf of the community and, and as a result of that then we're able to uh, engage and recruit more volunteers and it just sort of feeds itself right uh, to your point and, and then of course now they become strong advocates on our behalf I tell you, it's it's inspiring work. One of the things that I've been working on is the, this this project that might turn into a book, and and the point is that in modern American society, we have seen the disintegration of what some political scientists call mediating institutions. They might be our churches, it might be Rotary Club, it might be a Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, whatever the case may be. But the point is that the membership in those kinds of organizations, for the most part, has declined significantly. And so when we have people who are newly arrived in the country and don't have a driver's license, don't have a, a high school education, there has to be some entity, just because of how we operate as social beings, as, as human persons, that, that helps, helps to mediate yeah. that situation. And the great thing about your work is that you are preventing the government from being that mediating institution. And I say that as someone who doesn't hate government. I think there's a proper role for government. I think that you and I believe it ought to be more limited than what it is. And without the, the kind of work that Libre is doing on the front end of these relationships, government would be the answer stepping in and doing that. And we know what happens when that occurs. Kevin, you, you bring up a great point. Uh, none of the work we do, none of the resources that we spend uh, uh, have have been financed by government. We have not spent a single penny, or requested a single penny from uh, on, on a government grant or government concession. Uh, you're absolutely right. We do it with our own resources and working with third party organizations and third party partners. Sometimes even grocery stores. Uh, and, and because a lot of folks, you know, see themselves disenfranchised, and sometimes they see government as benevolent. Right, the only place that where they can receive some kind of help. And so if we're not involved, you know, I guess I think the Catholics call it subsidiary, um, th then it, many will continue to see themselves disenfranchised and, and frankly, that their votes don't matter also. Mm -hmm. and, and so we share some of that responsibility. And look, I'm going to put a lot of that blame squarely on Latino parents. We have to value the important, importance of our role in public life and, and really underscore the importance of civic involvement. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's not only important to be a good Christian, but to be a good citizen. And mm -hmm. this starts at home. And so it's no accident that, you know, for example, you know, the voter turnout rate in Puerto Rico is as high as 80 percent, almost 85. But the turnout rate of Puerto Ricans in Florida is like 50 percent. What mm -hmm. happened? And I think it's because there's a sense of loss of ownership. Um, and there's it's that sense of ownership that they're not feeling and, and they don't have access to our public institutions. That's where we have to step in. And I think that's what we serve as a platform for those folks that feel cut off. Uh, and, but now they have a voice. Now they can embrace these principles that intuitively they know are right and that they've always believed in. That's why they came to America. You know? and, and so um, and we're just proud you know, that we can serve as that kind of uh, platform for them. I tell you, what you're, what you're helping people do is help them take the steps toward realizing the American dream. And, and each of us, regardless of, of where our families and ancestors are from, need that at some point. And, and what I mean by that is not necessarily from government, hopefully not from government, unless it's a real safety net kind of situation, yeah. but from 
friends we make in our neighborhood, from people we encounter at church, maybe a, a coworker who understands their own obligation, and, and I see it as a moral obligation, to be involved, as you say, in public life. And what a lot of our listeners will not know is that you yourself have a most interesting story personally about how you got into this work. I know you're a humble, very modest guy, and you do this work to help other people, not to, to, to talk about yourself. But I think our listeners will be really inspired to hear about your own upbringing and how you got to do this work with Weebrain. Uh, thank you, Kevin. Uh, well, I mean, I think a lot of people relate to my story, especially Latinos, because, um, for example, even today, there are two million farm workers across America who work in the mm -hmm. fields and the orchards. And when my parents came to America, you know, that's how they started. They were they were farm workers who followed the crop seasons through California, Nebraska, in the panhandle and, and up to the state of Washington. And that's really kind of where we established. But, you know, half our, our year was spent in Mexico and the other half year in the U.S. following the crop seasons. And. My parents worked hard, like real hard. And, you know, I was a farm worker myself until I was 18 years of age, uh, working in the fields and the orchards alongside my parents. Um, and, you know, my parents, they took a shot, right? They, they, they risked all their life savings in a small business and, and it paid off for them. And, uh, and we were on our way. And it taught me, a, you know, a lesson. One that, you know, um, it was through their independence, that they were able to achieve their dream and, you know, hit that next level and, you know, move on and up the, the economic ladder. But second, I think my parents worked in the fields way too long. You know, had they started, you know, the learning English early, you know, um, had a high school diploma, the marketplace would have opened up to them much faster and they could have moved on and up much faster. And which is why we try to do so. I take a lot of what I learned through my life experiences and try to apply that to, to the job that I have. Um, and it was, you know, uh, even challenging with my education as well, which I'm, I'm such a big believer in school choice. I didn't have, you know, the luxury of attending school every day. I, I had to work in the fields every other day. And because of that, um, I, I, I had a, you know, through circumstances that I couldn't control. Um, I was a high school dropout, Kevin. Um, mm -hmm. And I had to overcome that and, and get a GED. Uh, and at 17 years old, you know, when you think about it, I was working in the fields with no prospect of a professional career, a high school dropout. And 17 years later, you know, I'm working at the White House for the president of the United States. That's just a testament to how incredible this country is and that no matter what your circumstances are, if you start making the right decisions, start making the right choices, and if, if those barriers are removed for you, there's no telling what the potential is and how far you can go. Uh, it's it's inspiring, even though I've I've heard you tell that story before. It's 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 inspiring each time because I know that hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Americans will will relate to that in, in some form or another. And if I put my public policy hat on, I think about how important getting education right is. And I know that, and you mentioned in, in your response just now that school choice is something that's important to you and to Libre. And, and I would just ask you to expand on that a little bit, because I think people often hear those of us who advocate for school choice say something that we don't intend, which is that we're somehow anti-public school. And it, it, you know, in, in our cases, it couldn't be further from the truth. We're simply wanting more people to be served by the kind of education that that serves them well. That, that's exactly right. Look, you know, the, the sacrifices and the hard, uh, devoted work that our public school teachers do is commendable. And uh, I, you know, I every day, you know, I'm so thankful for the for what teachers do. 
but they're being hamstrung by, you know, and sometimes an administration or cookie cutter approaches to public schools. Um, the public school system could not accommodate for someone like myself, you know, someone who um, was working in the fields, you know, who, who grew, grew up in poverty. Uh, and so I was spit out by that system. And today, you know, I believe so strongly that parents should have um, choices, options, you know, to, to, on how to educate their child, but also uh, one that accommodates sometimes, you know, for the unique challenges that each individual has or each family has. And, and school choice allows for that, you know, to have a private school system also, you know, that, that is made available to you now and you're not limited, you know, to, to your zip code or because of your economic condition. Uh, can open up the world to a child. You know, John F. Kennedy said it best, you know, uh, uh, advancement of our society can only be as as swift as advancement in our public education or in, in the education of our, of our children. And, and I believe that 100%. When somebody gets a quality education, the whole world is opened up to him and, and then they have, you know, the absolute potential to achieve their dreams. And we need that, you know, th th those kind of folks out there who are innovators, who, who are going to change the world. And um, But if you don't have a quality education, then you're limited and hindered uh, by that. Well, I, I tell you, the cost of that, as you know, later in life, cost to the individual, cost to society, that would be cost that, that we bear as, as taxpayers, are just tremendous. And so I know that both of us in, in our respective work have implored policymakers to get education right. And we, we actually want to honor the sacrifices of public school teachers by making sure that parents have ultimate freedom in choosing where their, their sons and daughters go. Because if that doesn't happen, we end up with a situation where huge numbers of people are underserved. And by being underserved, they're simply not reaching their potential as young adults. And that's where the societal costs, I think, especially for men, I mean, the, the, the studies are very, very clear about that. Men, regardless of ethnic background, if they are undereducated, become problems. And that's because we're so bad with free time. And so I think that the, the, the lever for all of this policy work, for the work that you're doing on the ground is education, both formal and informal. But I guess a lot of that is, is secondary to another policy area and one that you not only have worked on, but that you're very eloquent about, and that is the controversy of immigration policy. And one of the things I like about your work and, and something that we try to do here at the Public Policy Foundation is make sure and cut through the noise and just talk about the facts. And I would invite you to, if I kind of give you a magic wand, let's say, to walk us through what the best immigration policy for the United States would be. So, you know, so for us, um, I mean, we believe in, you know, obviously strong security for our country and also, you know, certainty that, that folks can have that they will not be deported. Um, but it also is a, a system that allows us to address market forces, right, by mm -hmm. bringing in the kind of folks that want to contribute uh, and um, uh, bring their leverage, their talents and their skills. You know, we believe the best path forward to reform the broken immigration system in the United States is through really sort of a streamlined market-based uh, system uh, that is employment-driven also. Mm -hmm. um, because there's a very rational activity occurring uh, in our, within our immigration system, and that is good, decent people are seeking opportunity, and they want to sell their labor to improve their lives. And there are mm -hmm. Americans who want to buy their labor so they can make a profit 
and, and generate wealth for themselves and for others. But we're over-criminalizing this very rational activity when we don't have to. And we feel that the ongoing failure of Washington to develop and approve a sound immigration policy really, in a, in a very real way, threatens our national security and our economic prosperity and, and the cohesion of the family unit, as we've seen lately. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, so, so, and especially now in the tight labor market that we have, you know, we're seeing that our, our economy is strong. And, but immigrants have been a big part of that. And, and you know, they'll continue to look to the United States as, as the beacon of hope for a better future. So at the Liberty Initiative, you know, we believe, again, in an immigration system that is focused on, on providing immigrants that are willing to work in the United States, the ability to legally enter and accommodate for future flows of immigrants through a streamlined common sense process. Uh, um, and so, but again, to, you know, it has to address market forces as opposed to arbitrary um, limits and caps that are placed by, by um, Congress members. And, and so, you know, obviously it's, it's a huge challenge because so many people want to come to America, but it, we should have that kind of accommodation, you know, to, that will welcome as many as we can who want to contribute, but keep those out who would exploit America or who would do us harm. Right. And it, it seems like it would be possible to strike that balance. And I know that this is a political hot potato. It's, it's, a, it's a highly partisan issue as well. And, and so I, I try to look at it from not just a public policy point of view, but a, a, a guy who lives in Texas and loves the market and loves the fact that we are a nation of immigrants. Very proudly, one of the many great things about the United States of America is that our founders understood you could build a political system in which a pluralist population, people of all kinds of backgrounds, socioeconomic differences could exist. They could of course, have many differences, but also emphasize our similarities, especially in civic life. And I think this immigration controversy is is uh, sort of exaggerated by some elements of the media. And I choose my words carefully there because I don't want to contribute to the problem. No, um, but right. really, here here on the ground in Texas, I actually think we could get this right. Uh, w- without question, the minor children of, of immigrants that are here, you know, you know are, are here through no fault of their own. And we just felt strongly that through DACA, uh, this was one uh, you know, component of, of our broken immigration system where we felt there was a, 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 a lot of promise of consensus. And mm-hmm. yet, you know, you have people on both sides that are playing politics and will retreat to their base when it looks like they're getting close to some kind of solution, some kind of consensus. Yeah, and we felt for the longest time, and, and I know Americans feel, that the Democrat Party doesn't get to define what immigration reform is, and neither does the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. They both do. They have to come together in a bipartisan way to reach that kind of consensus. But, you know, uh, unfortunately, you know, you have a lot of folks within both parties that are just trying to score political points. And that's been frustrating for a lot of Americans <clears throat> when we know that there are viable solutions out there. And... <clears throat> the status quo is not helping us focus on, you know, the, the, uh, on those who would present risk to us, you know, to our national safety. Yeah. And, and so it, we need to fix this because of that, you know, where we can, of course, allow those and welcome those who want to contribute and, and make us richer and more prosperous and wealthier as 200 million immigrants before them have in America and keep those out who would do us harm. It seems, um, if not simple, at least simpler than what a lot of people make it out to be. And one of the, the aspects or angles, I should say, 
of the immigration policy that we've tried to tackle here at the Policy Foundation is a version of the old guest worker program and one that might be state-based because we happen to have a lot of faith in policymakers in Texas being on the ground, being responsive to the market. Also, of course, balancing security with opportunity. And of course, one of the things that makes us very special as a nation state, and that is the rule of law. And and I'm, I know that we're hopeful here, I'm not trying to speak for you, but invite your feedback on it, that some version of that might be endorsed at the federal level. Have you done any work at the Libre Initiative on a reprisal of the old Bracero program? Uh, you know, we have not done any work on it specifically, but I, I know that we do welcome a um, a policy conversation uh, mm-hmm. on, you know, worker visas, you know, a modern day employment based market driven policy that, that, you know, we feel strongly would allow people to meet specific labor market uh, needs without capping visas and, and provide mm-hmm. employers really with the workforce that, that, that they require to drive their business. This is important for Americans, too. Right. Um, I talked about the two million farm workers that you know uh, are working in America today. Studies show that ninety five percent of them are here uh, undocumented, mm-hmm. and and that that's that's an unacceptable you know situation. That is not desirable for anybody. We can accommodate for these folks that are providing honest, valuable work, and and so uh, we just feel strongly that if it takes a worker visa program, then let's absolutely uh, consider that. Yeah, and and, uh, and I understand that would probably just be one step. I don't think it's the end all be all, but we're we're becoming more and more enamored with that as a first step to produce what I hope would be the kind of of conversation that you've been advocating for, where people on both sides of the political aisle recognize this is not something that can be solved with just one side of the spectrum, with with that is with one party. This really does require, as as you have discussed bipartisanship and statesmanship. And frankly, without it all being an alarmist, if we don't get this problem solved, we're not just going to continue to have a discord that we've seen, especially accentuated by news reports, but we're going to have a real economic problem. We're seeing that already in some parts of Texas where the, the unemployment rate effectively is zero. And if you are a business owner, you are hard pressed to provide the service from which you make a profit because you can't find workers. No, and and you know honestly, as a result of of you know of this, you, know, you say the status quo is unacceptable. And we I believe that one hundred percent. We also believe that implementing a, a robust employment driven policy, you know, a worker visa program or the Bracero style program, right, with all the bad components that that it came with in the past, um, where, where we believe free market demand drives the quantity of available worker visas really will discourage unauthorized immigration. You know, we don't, you know, folks say, well, you know, we're, we're all for legal immigration, but we're against illegal immigration. We need to change the law to, uh, to, to make that happen. Um, and so it just, I, I, we just feel it's, it's such an important part of, of our immigration discussion today. So in, in half an hour, you and I have solved the education problem, the immigration <laughs> problem. Uh, what other easy issue do you want to tackle? How, how about healthcare? What's <laughs> uh, obviously the the healthcare problem affects all of us, and and I think it affects in particular people who are trying to access the market. And and what have you seen in your work at the Libre Initiative? Both, uh, I guess, comments from people with whom you work, as well as potential solutions for solving this additional thorny problem. Well, you know, we, we took a lot of heat when we first started out um, because we were actually airing commercials um, 
in 2014 that that was actually holding Democrat uh, leadership accountable for having supported Obamacare. Mm -hmm. And for us, you know, uh, in a way, it kind of flew in the face of its popularity uh, within the Latino community. But I go back to where we started. Uh, Obamacare was sold to the Latino community uh, because they had an, uh, you know, the left had an open playing field. And it, again, it was a one-sided conversation on the benefits of Obamacare. And we were the only ones who were actually talking to the Latino community on why um, mandated health care was going to be bad for, for Latinos, especially because we were so young. You know, 25, 27 years median age and the rest of the country is 37. So those who were younger and healthier were going to pay the brunt of, of the, the, the additional costs that were coming from Obamacare. And that was us. You know, that was our young kids. And you know, we just felt that it was uh, lurching towards statism as well. And it didn't fix anything. And we predicted that premiums were going to spike, deductibles were going to spike, out-of-pocket costs were going to spike, that doctor uh, choices were, were going to be limited. And it proved to be the case. You know, 5% of all doctors speak Spanish. But in a state like California, a lot of them opted out of Obamacare, which actually reduced the pool of, of doctors that, that, you know, Latinos had access to who only spoke Spanish. This was a serious issue that nobody was talking about. By the end of our campaign, uh, it was under 50% popularity, actually went down to 44%. And a lot of the, the Democrats who had voted for Obamacare were hurt politically because of, of that from through the Latino vote. So we, we haven't moved from our position that, that we needed uh, a, an alternative to what Obamacare was offering, which was state-run, uh, government-led uh, uh, health care. I tell you, I, I'm just reminiscing now about those ads you referenced, and I'm thinking about how prescient they were, that, that everything that you mentioned in those ads came true. There, you know, there was a complete deterioration of the, the younger, healthier people who need to be in the insured pool in order for the rates for everyone else to be somewhat reasonable. And we are seeing, and I, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate and, and certainly in some cases tragic, the implosion of this really ill-advised Obamacare system it's unfortunate also, sort of like the situation we see with immigration, that neither political party can work together to make this happen. No, that, that's exactly right. And uh, they, they uh, again, they retreat back to the base, to, they retreat to what is safe, uh, which is do nothing. Um, and that, that's, that's been unfortunate. But they're you know, we can do something about that. You know, we can put the pressure uh, like we did in the past. And uh, we're, we, we have not obviously uh, given up on our efforts to uh, move the Latino co- uh, conversation on the issue of healthcare. that we move to, you know, private savings account, you know, where uh, crisis pools, you know, there, there, there are alternatives where we can, you know, where you can customize also the, the health insurance of a person instead of a one size fits all like was being you know, imposed on us by the Obama administration. Uh, to the credit of, of Republicans nowadays, you know, they, they have moved away uh, or have been biting into you know, or disintegrating, undermining, uh, which what have been the pillars of Obamacare. Mm. Uh, but there's a lot more to do. And I think there's alternatives that we can put in place uh, that would benefit all Americans. Sure. And we need to be able to have that conversation. Well, in spite of the fact that both you and I are optimists, we've we've spent some time talking about some thorny policy issues. And, and so as we begin to wrap up, I want to give you the opportunity 
to sort of hold your crystal ball for our listeners and look into that and give us a sense of your vision of the future of American civil society, maybe with all of the policy issues we've discussed being at least partially resolved. Well, look, you know, nothing would make me prouder and happier than to see an educated, engaged Latino community defending the principles of a limited government, uh, a free market system. I think it is discouraging, really, to see the left demonize our free market, American free market system and really entrepreneurs, you know, wealth creators. And they do so in the name of ameliorating inequality, you know, and the party machine, the media pundits and the left stable of elected officials and candidates are jumping on the bandwagon. It's, just, it's a disturbing political strategy. And not only because, you know, of course, it's meant to fool the masses into believing that our free market system is to blame for any you know, economic shortcomings uh, that they may be experiencing, but that the game is rigged against them is what they say. It's destructive because they seek to impose a failed system, what, you know, one in which the equality of results trumps trumps the equality of opportunity. And, you know, that has never been the case in America until today where we're seeing it at such a grand scale. And so, you know, to have, I think, um, the Latino community act as a vanguard against that, you know, um, is what we're trying to build here. And uh, so, so I, I see that, you know, the, the, this young Latino community has a lot of talent, a lot of skill, a lot of energy. We've never seen so many Latinos engaged around the principles of the free market. And, and we couldn't be prouder that we have a lot to do with that. Well, you ought to be, and I really do mean that. And so for our listeners who want to learn more about the Libre Initiative, where do they go? They can visit us on Facebook. We have about a million followers, uh, the Libre Initiative. Uh, they can go to www.belibre.org uh, on our website where we have a lot of information on how to get engaged, you know, how to contact us and, and learn about the issues that we're trying to drive. You can also go on Twitter, uh, Libre Initiative, uh, where we have thousands of followers and where they can, you know, uh, join the conversations that we're having on policy uh, or just reach out to us. You know, we have offices across the country and in, I think, 10 states where we actually have offices and staff. Uh, or, you know, you can also, you know, work with our partner organizations, Americans for Prosperity or, um, uh, uh, yeah, uh, the Veterans uh Concerned Veterans for America, which is a great organization. We work with them as well. So there's, I mean, there's a lot of ways, you know, that you can reach out and, and engage with us. Well, and, and uh, to you, our listeners, I, I will just fully endorse your taking that step and learning more about the Libre Initiative, especially if you're someone who is interested in a refreshing look on American politics and public policy, who wants, you want to maybe want to be motivated to have a little more optimistic view of the future. I think what they're doing is particularly exciting. Daniel Garza, who heads up that effort. Thank you so much for being with us on the foundation podcast. Kevin, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. You bet. Take care. Thanks for listening to the foundation podcast brought to you by the Texas public policy foundation. Please don't forget to subscribe.